Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Christopher Ogden discusses his book, Legacy, a biography of Moses and Walter Annenberg. Christopher Ogden, author of Legacy, a biography of Moses and Walter Annenberg. If uh, someone walked around, drove around Pennsylvania today looking for evidence that the Annenbergs have been here, what would they see? Well, they'd first see the uh, Annenberg School at, uh, at Penn, uh, and of course they'd see uh, the Enquirer, which is no longer theirs, uh, but which was the you know a cornerstone of Triangle Publications from 1936 uh, until uh, he sold it in 1969. So for more than 30 years, uh, and you'll see what you won't see is you see an extraordinary number of you know kids who've had uh, fabulous scholarships, whether they've been in uh, parochial schools in uh, in Philadelphia or in high schools and in uh, colleges. Uh, uh, those are less visible, but there are, you know, thousands of them around Pennsylvania and around the whole country. Now, your book is about both Moses and Walter Annenberg, father and son. Why do you want to write about both of them? It is a dual biography, and they're not all that common, but uh, two reasons. One, I didn't think you could understand Walter Annenberg without understanding his father. Uh, and two, his father's a fabulous story uh, as well. And so once, uh, the, the more I looked into uh, uh, Moses Annenberg, the more I realized that, uh, uh, that he was absolutely equal, equal weight here, uh, you know, for those, for those two reasons. How long did it take you to write it? It's been about a five-year process. I had a book come out in 1994 uh, about uh, uh, Pamela Harriman, and I started on this uh, shortly thereafter. And what happened at first was I, I wrote to Ambassador Annenberg. I'd met him and Mrs. Annenberg uh, at a dinner, actually, in Washington uh, for Margaret Thatcher, the subject of another biography uh, uh, I wrote some years ago. And uh, he had been the ambassador when I was first stationed in London. So I hadn't met him at that time. I was a very junior journalist, and he, of course, was the, uh, the ambassador, and I didn't get invited to those kind of things, being that junior. Uh, but I met him there, and uh, then I'd heard about I'd heard about his phenomenal uh, philanthropy, particularly the half billion dollars he gave to uh, uh, to public education in 1993. So it was kind of struck, planted a seed in my in my brain. So I wrote him and asked if uh, if he, he would be interested in participating in a in a biography, and he wrote me right back as as is the way he operates, uh, and said no, thank you. He was then 86, and it was. Uh, he was too old, he said, too tired, and it was too difficult for him to talk about his father, Moses, uh, particularly the part that Moses went to jail. And uh, so he didn't want to talk about it. So I wrote back, and not really wanting to take no for an answer, I, asked, I said, well, let's not talk about your father. If that makes you uncomfortable, let's talk about your philanthropy and what you're doing for education. And I was setting a hook, obviously. I wanted him to say yes. And so he said, why don't you come on out? He was out at his fabulous estate uh, in uh, just outside of Palm Springs, Sunnylands. And uh, so I flew out to see him. But just before I went, I thought, this is probably one of the few smart things I've done in my life. But I called up Ronald Reagan's biographer, who was a friend of mine, Edmund Morris. And I said, Edmund, what's your deal with Reagan? Is it, uh, you know, is it authorized? Do you have to show them what, what you're doing or, or show the Reagan family? And he said, no, no, I got to see the stuff, but it's not, uh, they don't, they don't, I don't have to get approval. What's the difference between an authorized and unauthorized biography? Is that Authorized, it? the subject actually can say, no, I don't want that anecdote, and I don't want you talking about that, and I think you should, instead of describing me as difficult, you should call me brilliant. <laughs> and uh, so they have a say in it. Unauthorized, they have no say. So this is unauthorized. This You're is unauthorized, but what I was seeking was cooperation. I mean, I think the best way is to do unauthorized when the subject cooperates. Uh, it takes, it's a high-risk gamble for the subject, <laughs> and they have to be really pretty courageous and pretty put their trust in you. So I went out, and he said, well, what do you want me to do? Uh, and I said, well, Ambassador, I'd like you to do for me what uh, your good friend, President Reagan, is doing for his biographer. <laughs> and he said, uh, what's that? 
and I said, and I took a breath, and I thought to myself, he was 86 years old, he'd already said no once, he's a multi-billionaire, he's used to getting his own way. I said, I would like you to show me everything, tell me everything, and get out of my way. And Mrs. Annenberg said, Walter, Walter, Mr. Ogden is telling you you will have no control over this project, control being a big word. <laughs> and uh, I asked her to repeat it, and she looked at me thinking I was a little odd about that, but she did. And I said, that's true, you won't have any control at all. And we had a nice, lovely lunch, and I got a tour of the estate, which was just beautiful, and then a tour of the golf course, which surrounds the estate, uh, which is 240 acres in downtown uh, uh, Rancho Mirage. And then the art, uh, and the art collection that they've given to the Metropolitan after his death is also on the walls. It's phenomenal, uh, just gorgeous. And so I got to see all of this, and I said, well, it was a lovely time, and it was kind of a scratch and sniff test, and I guess I failed, but I've, it's certainly been nice to see them. And as he was taking me to the door, he said, so when do you want to start? Was he familiar with your writing up to that point? Yes, he, ha uh, he was. Uh, he had read my biography of Margaret Thatcher, and uh, they liked that. It wasn't, uh, it was quite positive. It wasn't, uh, it was sympathetic, I guess you'd say, but it was, it was also critical. Uh, and they liked that because they're very close with Margaret Thatcher. And I think they were a little nervous about my Pamela Harriman biography because that was somewhat controversial. And Mrs. Annenberg said, however, that no, she read that book uh, right away when it had come out, and she knew it was very accurate. Uh, so that was, I had sent them both books, uh, you know, along the way, some, some weeks before, and uh, as it turned out, they had read both of them. At what point did you know you wanted to write about both Moses and Walder? I actually knew about it before, uh, before I approached them. Uh, I, when I wrote my proposal uh, for my editor, uh, I said that this clearly had to be a, a dual biography because Moses' story was a great story and Walter's story was a great story. Uh, and, but Walter is a very complex uh, character, and I don't mean to be uh, uh, rude by just referring to him as Walter. It's just sh better shorthand, I think, since if I call him the senior Annenberg and the junior Annenberg <laughs> or whatever. But anyway, calling him, uh, uh, I, think, I think Walter was very complex. And so to understand why he is the way he is uh, absolutely necessitated uh, talking about his father and also, interestingly, a person who doesn't, isn't spoken about much uh, in anything that's written about the Annenbergs, but uh, Walter's mother, Sadie, who was a very key influence on his character. So he agreed to an interview and you scheduled it? and sat down with him, and what did you start asking him about? Well, he not only agreed to an interview, but I saw him dozens and dozens of times and spoke to him on the telephone. I, I went out and stayed with the family in California on several occasions. I shuttled back and forth between Washington, D.C., where I live, uh, and St. David's in Wynwood, Pennsylvania, uh, where he has his office in St. David's, and in Wynwood, where they live seven months of the year. Uh, I did a lot of shuttling there. And so I interviewed him at great, great length, and I interviewed Mrs. Annenberg, Lee Annenberg, at great length, and everybody in the family uh, uh, that I could find. And the irony, of course, is having said that he didn't want to talk about his father, uh, once we started talking, he couldn't stop talking about his father. Now, as, as we tape this, it is mid-1999. How old is Walter Annenberg? He's 91 and almost a half. He was 91 in March. And he lives seven months of the year in Wynwood? Yes, he comes, uh, he comes back, uh, back east in May uh, to, uh, to Wynwood, just on the outskirts of Philadelphia on the main lines. A beautiful house on a 14-acre estate that he's owned since the 1930s. Uh, and he spends the winter months, he usually leaves about the 1st of December and, and until the 1st of May uh, out in Rancho Mirage, where, where Sunnyland's... Uh, is. I want to ask you a little bit about some of the other interviews that you did for this book. I counted 189 names in the back of the book, and then you say, um, a number of sources spoke with me on the condition that they would not be identified. That's true. What kind of things did they tell you that they didn't well, want to be identified? There are a lot of people who, were, who worked with him very closely, either uh, at uh, Triangle Publications or at the embassy uh, in, uh, in London, or who have known him socially, uh, who just felt more comfortable not, not having their name uh, uh, mentioned in there. Uh, so it's clearly more than 200 people, uh, other sources outside the Annenberg 
uh, aside from the Annenbergs uh, with whom I spoke. Uh, you know, in Washington, if you ask uh, if you ask a politician what he thinks about something, and he says if it's on the record, he'll say, you know, well, I think this is a fine uh, fine presentation by the administration or something, and it's boilerplate. And if you ask him, and he said, but if you want to hear want it off the record or on background or something, and it's not going to be pinned to him or her by name, they're much more comfortable talking. And it's not always negative stuff. Sometimes it's just positive stuff where they just uh, don't want to be identified. But for the most part, it's negative stuff. Uh, let me read some of the names in your uh, that you interviewed, and I highlighted some of them here. I want to ask you about them. Um, cardinal Anthony Bevilacqua. Yes, uh, the cardinal was great. I, I spoke to him uh, because I was very interested in uh, in Walter Annenberg's relationship with the with the archdiocese of Philadelphia. He's been extremely generous uh, to the archdiocese. He's not Catholic. He's Jewish, <laughs> and uh, and yet uh, uh, he was not only not only has he been and he's been and he was very close uh, with Cardinal Kroll, uh, Cardinal Bevilacqua's uh, predecessor, uh, and he's done He's he's been very, extremely generous uh, to the parochial school system uh, of Philadelphia, and it's and I asked him why, and he said simple. They they educate well and efficiently, uh, and he said I think they could use some help. And I'm all for I'm all for excellence, and I'm all for efficiency, and I'm all for helping anybody who can educate someone else well. So he's been he's been very, very solid supporter on that. And and so the and Cardinal Bevilacqua uh, was telling me uh, some about that. Another thing, uh, he he was quite close to the uh, uh, to the archdiocese when the, when the Pope came some years ago, uh, and there was a big. Uh, Fufra about who was going to pay for the the altar. The city was going to pay for it, and then I believe it was uh, the ACLU which said this was a mixture of church and state, and there was a threat of a lawsuit. And uh, Walter Annenberg heard about this, called up at that point Cardinal Kroll and said, "How much for the altar?" And he said, fifty thousand dollars." And he said, "You'll have my check on your desk in an hour. I won't have His Holiness, you know, getting having any problems here in town." And the archdiocese was very pleased. Uh, a disc jockey from Philadelphia from the 50s and 60s, who I guess is still around, Jerry Blavitt. Yeah, the geeter with the heater, the boss with the hot sauce. Uh, Jerry Blavitt's terrific. He knows the Annenbergs. They like him very much. He, he once hosted a, a, a party, or it was the DJ for a party uh, uh, for uh, uh, Lee Annenberg's daughter. Uh, and, uh, and he also, Walter Annenberg's favorite food is... Uh, is pasta, an Italian food, very simple Italian food, as a matter of fact, but good Italian food. And uh, uh, Jerry Blavitt's mother actually has cooked uh, Italian food for for Walter in the past, and they've done some things at uh, uh, Italian, some of the great Italian restaurants in Philadelphia. Uh, he took me around on a tour of Philadelphia, which I think you'd only see at that level, uh, where he knows everybody. You can't walk down the street with Jerry Blavitt and not people saying, "Hey, Geeter, how's this?" And uh, so he was uh, he was really marvelous in how he intro helped introduce me to Philadelphia. Dick Clark. Uh, I was astonished to, the, to, to learn that Dick Clark was involved in an Annenberg Enterprise. Uh, but I, uh, I, I learned that when, among the many things that Walter created, one of them was University of the Air. I mean, he was trying to fill airspace in the afternoon uh, and reasonably, I mean, he's he's not a guy. Well, he's very generous. He's not a guy to throw money at uh, at programming, and uh, and he also thought University of the Air. He could put it on and and have a, a good purpose. And the the other, not the other end of the extreme, but but a similar vent was American Bandstand, and the Bandstand program had started on a radio station that that Walter owned. And uh, the fellow who was uh, uh, involved with it got himself in some uh, police trouble. He was arrested on statutory rape charges and all, and that was that was it for him. He got the hook, and uh, Walter said, "Well, what about that young uh, kid down there in the radio shop? Uh, uh, you know, he's pretty good, looks looks wholesome." And so the uh, Roger Clip, the uh, director of programming, went down and asked uh, asked this young fellow if he'd uh, wanted to take over the TV show. And Dick Clark said, "Who? Yeah, I'd like to do that a lot." I spoke to Clark, and he and he told me the only um, the only time he had any uh, uh, not a run in, he said Annenberg was very supportive to him. But he said he got caught up in this payola stuff uh, for a while, where he had to testify uh, before uh, Congress in Washington. And uh, he said just before he went down, he, he was out at the Annenberg home for an affair, 
And Waller put his arm around him and said, now listen, uh, tell me, is there anything else you know, that we don't know that you, know, you want to tell me before you go down and testify? And uh, Clark said, no, no, I've told you everything. He said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm clear on this. And uh, Walter said, was, well, in that case, he said, don't worry about it, my boy. He said, being, being investigated this way is like a crucible and it'll forge you in fire and you'll be a better man for it. Let's go enjoy the party. Because, of course, this is what had happened to Walter some years before. Thatcher Longstreth. Uh, city councilman, of course, uh, with a, a very long memory for uh, uh, what's going on in Philadelphia particularly, uh, and uh, has, has uh, come, on, come under fire by Walter. They're not, uh, they're not what you'd call uh, close. Uh, but he was very helpful to me, in, uh, again, in, in understanding some of the, some of the subcurrents and the, and the themes uh, in city politics and where uh, not only where Walter fit in those and, and, and his stances, uh, again, I'm an, I'm an outsider. I'm not a Philadelphian. I'm not a Pennsylvanian. So it was very important to me to talk with people that I felt understood or I'd been guided to understood uh, that's what was going on here. And so not only what, uh, what Walter's approaches to the city were politically, but what this, how the city dealt with him and, uh, and how the different factions lined up. I mean, what was it about what would get Walter mad and what would get him on a, uh, on a, on a, a high horse uh, editorially, which sometimes happened? What were the social uh, uh, elements here? Who did he back and why? Uh, because he's, he, he's surprised. that Walter can be a real surprise. He's, I thought he'd be a knee-jerk conservative from everything I've heard, and he's not that at all. He's very independent. He's, uh, he supports uh, the people and issues that he feels strongly about. They're by no means are they all Republican, and uh, by no means are they all conservative. Uh, so it was very helpful for me to, to talk to someone like Thatcher Longstreth uh, and, and some others in there as well to, um, you know, to give me some more sense of this fabric. I mean, a biography is like doing a jigsaw puzzle. You're constantly looking to see what pieces fit. And, uh, and, and if you're not sure about a piece, you have to triangulate everything. You go around and talk to somebody else, and you get another opinion, you get another opinion. And when you get enough opinions and they start to come together, then you start to have the, the, the beginnings of understanding. I, we could spend the whole hour just uh, talking about these because you, you have other names in here. Um, Jack Anderson, the columnist, Julie Nixon, Eisenhower, Gerald Ford, William Green, the former mayor. William sure. Green. Uh, Sheldon Hackney, former University of Pennsylvania president, Alexander Haig, uh, Irv Kupsinet, Chicago talk show host, Newton Minow, uh, Colin Powell, Nancy Reagan, um, Margaret Thatcher, and Barbara Walters. But um, we could also easily spend an hour on each of the Annenbergs. So, but uh, Moses Annenberg you referred to, and you haven't, uh, we haven't delved into him yet. Tell me something about Moses Annenberg. Well, Moses was, Moses was an extraordinary Immigrant. He was. He was the. He was the American. Uh, the the beginnings of the American family, uh, kind of as we, as we as we see them. When you think of the immigrant experience and and someone who has nothing and trying to make good, Moses Moses Annenberg is the quintessential uh, uh, immigrant in that light. Immigrant from where? Came came from uh, Eastern Prussia in 1885 on the border with uh, what's now Lithuania. Uh, one of 11 kids uh, of his father and mother. The father came over about two years earlier and went to Chicago uh, and then brought the elder brother and then eventually uh, brought the whole family over a couple of years later. Uh, Moses had only four years of schooling, of formal schooling, but he was a brilliant kid. And when he got to, uh, to Chicago uh, in 1885, uh, he, was, uh, he was eight years old. And, uh, and he went to work on the streets almost immediately with his brother, and they started selling newspapers on the south side of Chicago. Uh, and they did it really, really well. And they did it for, uh, you know, the next 15 years. Uh, actually, in Moses' case, he did it for the next 20 years. Uh, and it was a very, very tough business because in just, in the turn of the, just before the turn of the century, there were nine daily newspapers in Chicago, and the competition was extraordinary. Uh, and then William Randolph Hearst came to town, and uh, in fact, he, he had uh, his editor, Simon Carvalho, who always said, can you get up and running, the Chicago American, can you get it up and running by July 4th? Carvalho kind of thought about it for a while, and he said, well, I mean, it was a matter of weeks away. 
And he said, well, I'll try, but we'll probably have to shoot our way in. And he meant it literally. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he did, and they got the paper up and running, and it was called, it was set up on Madison Street, and it was called the Madhouse on Madison Street because it was such a mad operation. I mean, just wildly chaotic and, and uh, running through editors and all. So Moses is down on the south side selling uh, newspapers better than anyone else could sell them. And he rose in the organization. Uh, and by the, by the year 1906, he would, he'd had a lot of success uh, as a circulation guy. He had, uh, but a very tough guy. I mean, he had left notes that I came across that the Annenbergs weren't even aware existed. Uh, we talked about going off to work at 3.30 in the morning on the streetcar with a gun in each of two pockets. Uh, and he had, he had thugs working for him who worked with baseball bats and guns. And, and the deal was, with 10 newspapers, if you couldn't sell your papers, it was called sell them or eat them. And uh, so it was, you get the other guy not to sell his. Newspapers ended up in the, in the Chicago River. News vendors' kiosks were burned. Fellows were beaten up routinely uh, trying to capture turf. Uh, in, in a way, you see these kind of neighborhood gangs these days. Well, in those days, it was uh, the newspaper uh, circulation guys. By 1906, Moses had four kids, and he had a wonderful wife uh, who was absolutely his opposite. Moses was tough and wiry and all, and very ascetic and kind of dark and all angular, and he was kind of an El Greco-looking fellow, and he's married to this wonderful uh, woman, Sadie, who was just completely different. She was soft and round and white and cushiony and bosomy and all of that, and uh, the kind of woman that you felt if she just wrapped her arms around you, everything was going to be okay in the world. And, and of course, Mo Walter was going to be a product of this, but he wasn't born yet. So, but Sadie says, listen, you've got four kids, you're going to get killed here. And Moses realized that there was time to do something else. His older brother, Max, was kind of holding down his uh, chances to, to get ahead as well, and he just figured it was time to get out of Chicago. And they moved up to Milwaukee. And he arrived in Milwaukee, $1,500 in debt, He'd quit a $60 a week job. He had four kids, and this is 1906. He left in 1920. He moved back to New York, uh, and at that point, he had $2 million in the bank, and he was making $300,000 a year, and he had eight children, including Walter, who was his only son. S seven of the eight kids were daughters. And in fact, he'd had a, an, an eighth daughter who had, uh, who had died uh, in, in her at the age of five, but he had seven surviving ones. So Walter was the only child. So the Milwaukee experience was transforming. I want to read you about the daughters. You, you uh, say here, uh, raised as princesses, the Annenberg daughters reminded some people of Cinderella's stepsisters, the most dreadful women, Richardson Dilworth called them. My mother and my six aunts, with a few exceptions, were probably the most difficult people I ever knew, said Ronald Cranser son of daughter Polly. All of them were spoiled and the number were totally unreasonable. This is true and uh, uh, Ron Cranster lives in Villanova and he was, uh, he was wonderfully helpful on this as well. Uh, and one of the, his, his, mother was, his mother was one of the toughest. They were, they were spoiled. Uh, Moses, uh, Moses, didn't, uh, Moses didn't spare them anything in terms of uh, material uh, goodies. They had a lot of money uh, growing up. Uh, they also had got their own way. Uh, they had, uh, uh, the seven daughters had uh, uh, 20, 23 husbands among them. Uh, Sadie Annenberg used to bemoan the fact that she had so many sons-in-law. She was so delighted when Walter finally got married and gave her a daughter-in-law. But uh, uh, they, were, they were tough cookies. They were spoiled. They wanted, they expected to get their own way. Uh, and they didn't make it very easy for, uh, for Walter's wives either. I want to point out that that is Moses there, right? That's right. Okay. Uh, how many of the daughters had careers? Had careers? Uh, one, one was uh, primarily known for having a career, and that was uh, Enid, uh, Enid Haupt later, who uh, was for some time the very successful editor uh, of Seventeen magazine, which uh, Walter founded in 1944. She probably had the, uh, well, not probably. I mean, she was, she was the one with the best, the best known career. Now, Moses uh, founded the Daily Racing Form? No, he right? didn't, but he bought it in 1922 for $400,000. Uh, 
Uh, it had been going for a while, uh, and it, uh, but in the first year he owned it, he brought to bear some of these management concepts that would really showcase his genius. But what's he, in it? Uh, well, the, the form was, became the racing Bible. It was pretty much the racing Bible. And you have to keep in mind that the racetrack in those days was the only way really to gamble. I mean, we didn't have Atlantic City and Las Vegas and various casinos, and we didn't have state lotteries. I mean, you could bet on the horses, and that was the deal. And to bet on the horses, you had to know what the horse's performance was. And so the daily racing form was a, an extremely precise uh, record of what each horse in every race had done against all kinds of competition in every race that it had ever run, uh, including, uh, and also its lineage and its, you know, all of this. So, uh, but Moses, he bought the paper and then he, he centralized the administration and then he regionalized not only the distribution, which is what he was great at, but also its production. So West Coast branches of it and East Coast branches and he had additions all over the place and he made it absolutely imperative that if you wanted to, to uh, uh, play the horses, you had to buy racing form. What was the difference between that and the racing wire? Well, now, the racing wire, which he also uh, owned, was the electronic transmission of, uh, of data. The form you bought at a newsstand. Uh, it was a newspaper, a daily newspaper. Uh, but, of course, when the newspaper came out in the morning, there would be changes during the day. The weather would change, a jockey would get hurt, a horse would get hurt and scratch. So the, the information was constantly changing. So what they also had was they had a wire from these tracks that uh, it's like a Morse code uh, uh, wire that would go into all the legitimate news operations, into newspapers all around the country, but also into every bookie joint in the country, thousands and thousands of them. And that's where the money was really to be made. Uh, Moses Annenberg considered it just the transmission of news, uh, you know, what was going on and what happened. Uh, but it brought him into uh, contact. It was a terrible mistake for him to get in uh, to get into uh, the wire. The form was okay. The, the printed word seemed to be all right. There weren't any questions about that, but that was available to everybody. But the racing wire and its connection and, uh, with the bookie parlors really cast a shadow over Moses Enterprises. Made him tons of money. But uh, there, were, there were underworld uh, implications and there were uh, mobsters trying to control the bookies and all of that. So it really tainted him uh, and his enterprises uh, forever. He crossed swords with uh, Al Capone and Frank Nitti at one point in your well, book. Well, Capone wanted to take over his business. Once Prohibition uh, was, uh, you know, overturned and, and you could drink again, the mob was looking for uh, new sources of revenue. And they thought that the, uh, that the track would be one of them. And they saw that Moses was making a tremendous amount of money on this. And they tried to buy him out. They tried to scare him out. And uh, Needy, uh, in fact, tried to uh, carry out uh, a contract on Moses. In 1936, Moses bought the Philadelphia Inquirer. He did. He, and he did it for a very specific uh, purpose. Uh, first of all, he loved newspapers. I mean, he'd grown up with newspapers, selling them and, and then working circulation for them. Uh, but what he really wanted, he, he knew that being the king of racetrack information, which he was at that point, was not the legacy that he wanted to leave for his only son. He didn't much care about the legacy for his daughters. He figured they were being provided for, but it was, he, it was very old world in that sense. It was primogenitor. Everything went to the son. And so he wanted something more serious, more, uh, uh, more high-toned, more high-minded uh, for his son Walter. And he loved the newspaper business. He wanted to do it himself. He tried to get in out at, back in Milwaukee where he'd worked, but that paper uh, wasn't available. Uh, and the Philadelphia Inquirer, which had fallen on hard times in the, uh, in the late 20s and early 30s, became available and he pounced. What kind of city was Philadelphia that he moved into? Well, I was mighty shocked <laughs> to, that, he, that he bought the Inquirer. I mean, here is, here is Moses. He's the king of track information and he's a Jew. And, and not, I mean, there were Jews that had assimilated in, in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania. They'd come over in the 1700s with Penn and shortly after, and they'd come in the mid-1800s from Berlin and uh, from great universities, and they'd had great uh, uh, wealth in some cases. But when the Annenbergs came in that kind of third 
la and, and last great tranche of immigration at the end of the 1880s and after the pogroms in Russia in the 19, early 1900s. And that wave was just less considered, less desirable. They didn't have as much money. They didn't have as much education. They didn't come from the big uh, city centers, from the great Jewish urban families. Uh, so they were different. So Moses had two strikes against him. He was, uh, he was in what was considered a tainted business, uh, and he was an uneducated uh, uh, Jew. And he, so when he hit Philadelphia to buy the paper, I mean, if you had blown up City Hall in 1936, you wouldn't have created a much greater uh, sensation than when the word got out that Moses Annenberg had bought the Enquirer. Who were his competitors in Philadelphia? Well, he had the, the Bulletin, of course, which was the evening uh, paper, and that was, uh, that was a kind of genteel competitor. But he had a real uh, aggressive competitor uh, in the other morning paper in the Daily Record, which was run by a fellow named uh, J. David Stern. Now, Stern and Moses were in, in some cases similar, but in the key, uh, in that they were both very aggressive, and, uh, uh, but they were different in the fact that they had very uh, uh, different beliefs. Stern was a gentrified uh, Jew, and so which added another little element uh, to, this, uh, to this battle. But Stern's paper, Stern was very pro-New Deal, very pro-Franklin Roosevelt, and he was a friend of Franklin Roosevelt and of uh, Henry Morgenthau and Harold Ickes, the president's close advisors. Uh, and when Moses came in, it was his determination to drive Stern out of business, and he was doing a very good job of it. And Stern was suffering. He'd had an easy run against the earlier owners of the Enquirer, who had been, not been paying attention to it for years, and Stern had been doing great. Moses Annenberg came in in 36, and by 1938, he was, he was a big, big deal in Pennsylvania politics, using his bully pulpit, uh, the editorial pulpit of the Enquirer, and he was taking on Franklin Roosevelt, he was taking on David Stern, and Stern told Roosevelt, he said, he's killing me up here, and he's killing you too, uh, because in, in 1938, of course, it was a tough, very tough year, midterm elections uh, uh, that year, it was very tough uh, for the Democrats. There was the Little New Deal in Pennsylvania, uh, which Moses campaigned against, and it went down. Very hard to recall right now, with in hindsight, that Franklin Roosevelt could have looked vulnerable in 1938 because he'd won so big in 1932. He won again very big in 1936. But in 37, he tried to pack the court, and in 38, the uh, unemployment, which had been going, had been uh, the unemployment rate, which had been improving, actually dipped again. I mean, it was got bad again, uh, and then there was. A lot of business people turned against the president, thinking that he wasn't, the administration was not taking a strong enough record against sit-down strikers, and Moses was one of those. And so he, he went full tilt out against FDR uh, and the New Deal, although he'd voted for him the first two times around. And he got in trouble with FDR over this. Yeah, he did. It was a big, big setback uh, for FDR and the Democrats in 1938. And Moses Annenberg was up here in Pennsylvania waving the flag and stirring the pot, and they were not going to let that continue. So they came after they, the president and his assistants, particularly Morgenthau and Ickes, whom I discuss at some length in the book, and how they decided uh, to come after uh, Moses. You uh, write in here that, that political hands were guiding the noose around Moses' neck should have surprised no one. The president was not reluctant, this is FDR, was not reluctant to use the FBI and Internal, Reven Internal Revenue Service to advance his agenda and harass political opponents who caused him less trouble than Moses. Roosevelt was hardly alone in the practice. Many sitting presidents have done the same. But as David Burnham, author of A Law Unto Itself, noted, it appears, in fact, that President Franklin D. Roosevelt may have been the champion abuser. What do you think of FDR? Well, he's a great president. You know. Probably our great, I think, our greatest president of uh, of this century. Did you have Did you have this impression of him before you started the book? No, I didn't realize. Uh, I knew he was very tough uh, because, let's face it, you don't uh, deal with what Roosevelt had to deal with: uh, uh, depression, uh, uh, paralysis, personal paralysis from uh, from polio, world war, and uh, with just the uh, you know cigarette holder jauntily in the air. I mean, there was there was a very spine in Franklin Roosevelt, and I did know a lot about that. Uh, but what surprised me was the extent to which he, uh, he didn't even pretend 
that he wasn't going to get himself involved in these things. I mean, some of the, some of, uh, the greatest uh, Roosevelt historians, people like Arthur Schlesinger, were, would, were very specific, and I cite uh, in the book about just how tough uh, Roosevelt was. Uh, if, if he had an enemy, he would, he would go right after them and use this. David Brinkley uh, talked at, uh, in, one of, in a memoir at one point about he was sitting in the Oval Office one day uh, when the, an aide came in and told the, uh, told the president that uh, somebody was complaining about a fine that the IRS had level, levied on him, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and the president halved the fine uh, as he sat there. He said, well, cut it in half, and maybe that'll quiet him down. And Brinkley was astonished. He said, you know, the president, I mean, this, none of this hands off. This was, he used the IRS for his own political purposes. The problem for Moses was that Moses was guilty. I mean, Moses uh, had set himself up. Moses had not paid his taxes. In, in 1932, he owed $350,000, and he'd only paid $300 in taxes. And in 1935, he owed, uh, I think it was something like $750,000, and he'd only paid $45,000 in taxes. You know, he was guilty. <laughs> so, which is not to say that there was not a political vendetta involved, because there was. There was, nobody went after Moses Annenberg with a vengeance until Moses Annenberg uh, trounced, uh, was responsible in a large part for trouncing the Democrats in Pennsylvania in 1938. What happened to him? They got him. <laughs> uh, it took him a it took him a long time, but the uh, the uh, IRS investigators uh, found that he hadn't paid his taxes, and they indicted uh, everybody in sight, including and this was the key. They uh, they indicted uh, Moses' only son Walter as well. And when Walter got indicted, Walter worked with his father, but his father had him mostly signing checks. He didn't have him really participating in, in a kind of modern-day uh, job training program to, to train my, my son to take over the company. I mean, he had him doing uh, not very serious stuff. And Walter wasn't a serious business guy. So Walter was, Walter was yes, he was working for his father, but he was not, you know, he was not uh, guilty of what the father had been. But by indicting Walter, I mean, Moses realized that when the feds indicted Walter, his son, uh, that, he, that he was going to have to do something. Walter was Moses' Achilles' heel. So Moses cut a deal, and he agreed to plead guilty to a single count uh, of evasion on the grounds that the other charges would be dropped. So Walter would not, they dropped the indictment against Walter, which is what happened, which of course made Walter later feel very guilty. Moses also thought that he could pay off the fine whatever fine there was, and he'd probably get probation because he'd never been in serious trouble before, and, uh, and he and I had these eight children and all of that. The, the, what he really missed out on was the, was the determination that the administration had to put him out of circulation. I mean, they, they, did not, they were not going to let him pay a fine and then go right back to his uh, editorial board and say, let's go get him again. They wanted him off the street, out of the pulpit, they wanted him in jail, and that's what happened. So he went to jail. He went to jail. He went to Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary uh, in 1940. He also left for Walter to pay the largest civil fine in history up until that point, $9.5 million, which at today's dollar exchange with inflation would be more than $100 million. So Walter had to pay off that fine, and his father's sitting up in Lewisburg. Uh, and this was an astonishing shock for the family. What kind of relationship did father and son have while Walter was growing up? Well, it was a, it was a mixed uh, relationship. The father was, uh, loved Walter very much, uh, and he was also extremely harsh on him. He thought Walter was spoiled and uh, a playboy, and the mother and the seven sisters were cosseting him, and, and uh, he was just a softy, and he, and he, and he wasn't... He, Moses wanted to forge him in fire, and so... While he, would, while he loved him and he would uh, uh, hand money over to him, he would also scream at him and yell at him and tell him that he didn't know what he was talking about a lot of the time, and Walter would just shut up. But, so Walter had not shown any capacity at that point for being any kind of a, a businessman, particularly, or any kind of leader or any kind of business visionary, which he would turn out to be. He'd had an undistinguished academic career in high school, he dropped out of Wharton School at Penn uh, in his first year. At the end of his first year, he was failing most of his subjects. 
he wasn't very interested uh, because he was mostly speculating in the stock market. This is in 1927, 20, 28. And he was making a ton of money on the stock market. He was always very good at investments. But his father bailed out of the, uh, uh, of the market just before the crash, told Walter to bail out, and Walter did not. Uh, Walter ended up losing uh, $350,000 or uh, millions in, in today's dollars, and his father bailed him out. But Walter also, he had a serious stutter. He has a, a deformed right ear, so he can't hear on that side. And he was very shy. Uh, so, and he had a lot of insecurities. So. Dealing with his father, Walter loved his father, but his father was not easy to deal with, and his father was not easy in raising Walter. You do say that uh, Walter Annenberg danced with Ginger Rogers before Fred Astaire danced with Ginger Rogers. Well, Walter was, Walter was a, a, a bit of a playboy. Uh, uh, not a, uh, uh, in, you know, in the nice sense. He wasn't, he wasn't, a, he wasn't a, a great Lothario, but he liked always has liked uh, attractive women. He's married to a very attractive women. He's great with women. He's, uh, uh, women uh, have a lot of fun with him. You know, Dan, he's a wonderful dancer, and, and, and uh, so he's, he's comfortable with women because, heavens, he grew up surrounded by women, his mother and his seven uh, sisters. But he did. He dated, uh, uh, he dated Ethel Merman uh, for a while. That actually got reasonably serious. And, uh, uh, and he dated some other uh, great beauties uh, in, the early, in the early 30s while he was uh, his father's assistant but not doing too much. And, of course, his father uh, also owned several uh, uh, Hollywood uh, starlet magazines. And so Walter could go out to California and as the son of the proprietor was extremely well received in Hollywood, when the uh, when the young, good-looking son of the uh, of the owner of uh, some of these uh, starlet books uh, would come out to visit, so he he knew a lot of good-looking uh, women. So when Moses Annenberg went off to jail, Walter was left to run the Inquirer. Walter was, and how, how well equipped was he at that point? He was not well equipped because of what I'd mentioned. But what happened was. I think while Moses was in jail, it was Walter's graduate school, uh, actually. It was an intense university and graduate school experience. Walter could write three letters a week to his father, and his father could write one letter a week back, which Walter would, uh, was, uh, was handwritten, and Walter would have typed up by his secretaries and circulated to his mother and all the sisters, even the letters which said, you don't have any idea what you're doing. Uh, Walter just sent them all out. And so I was talking to him one day and s about these letters and said, Are, do you have any of these? Do any of these letters still exist? And he said, come with me. And we walked down this hallway and he pulled out a key from his pocket and we went into this quite in dark room, uh, curtains pulled, and he took me over and there were boxes around the room and he said, why don't you take a look in those two boxes? You might find that's interesting. And I did was every letter that he had written his father, a copy thereof, and every letter that his father had written him. I mean, it was a treasure trove for a biographer, and I could see his, his father would give him some very precise instructions, and you could watch in the two years of this correspondence while Moses was in jail, you could see Walter's confidence growing, uh, you know, letter by letter as he would respond to his father's concerns. His father was also out of the picture. His stutter got a lot less while his father was <laughs> in jail. Uh, he became increasingly confident. And, of course, his hand, as the hands-on director at that point, where he couldn't, uh, was, his father wasn't able to do any uh, hands-on managing at that point. It was up to Walter, and Walter did rise to the occasion. What kind of paper was the Inquirer under Walter as opposed to under Moses? Well, it was, uh, you know, it was less, it was less dynamic uh, in many ways. It was somewhat more uh, uh, kind of civic-oriented. I mean, uh, Moses was a tabloid guy, and uh, Walter, was, uh, Walter was not. I mean, Moses would like to run pictures of, uh, of models and lingerie, and Walter would like to run uh, pictures of uh, the great waterfalls of the world or John Audubon uh, uh, etchings. Uh, Walter was a lot more square, and, uh, and a lot and a lot straighter. They were similar, though, in the fact that uh, just as as Moses used the Inquirer to uh, uh, for his own political purposes, so did Walter. I mean, Walter's model was not, you know, the Salzberger family from the New York Times. It was, 
It was uh, William Randolph Hearst, and it was Colonel McCormick from Chicago, uh, Joseph Pulitzer. These are, the, these are the real newspaper proprietors who had a position and wanted to get it across and did it their, their way. There was none of this separation of the publisher from the editorial side. The public, Walter was publisher and editor, and that paper said what he wanted it to say. There were certain people who would be blacklisted from the newspaper, and their names just wouldn't appear at all in the paper. Yeah, that was not as that was that was probably the worst blot on his uh, on on his journalistic career. I want to read this one particular part. You say uh, one quarrel involved the Philadelphia Warriors, the basketball team, and the Triangle-owned arena in which the team played. When Triangle was unable to reach a settlement uh, with the team on a lease renewal for the remainder of the season, the Inquirer eliminated coverage of the basketball team. There were no game stories, no features, no line scores, no mention in and the NBA standings box and promotional ads were rejected. Game attendance plummeted. It was as if the team had ceased to exist. Dropped into a black hole. Yeah. Well, he was, Waller was very angry. There's a, there was a lot of anger in him uh, about primarily what had happened to his father, to a lesser extent, his own situation, his stutter, his, his, uh, the fact that he'd been not taken seriously. The, but mostly that he was, he was angry at what he thought had the vendetta that had been directed at his father. And, uh, and he was determined to both to prove himself and to restore uh, the family name. But one of the things that fascinated me about his character was, because I saw him, I've seen him over the past five years, and he's, you know, wonderful. He's very avuncular, he's very kind and wonderfully gracious and, you know, astonishingly generous. But in the 40s and 50s and 60s, he was an angry, tough guy. And so I was trying to reconcile what I saw of him, which was, you know, Mr. Wonderful, with what I knew was the case in the years that I had not known him, where it was, he was, you know, he was a dictator uh, in, in his newsroom. So... That was fascinating to, to, to come to turn, and it, and it did require talking to a lot of Philadelphians and a lot of Pennsylvanians to say and, and to determine what was he like before and then what changed him. He described him as a workaholic when he was with the Inquirer. Yeah, uh, he's, he's, very, he's very hardworking, and he had... Uh, I, I don't think he had... Uh, his, I don't think his staff at the Inquirer uh, served him as well as his staff at, say, TV Guide... Uh, which he ran from Radnor or uh, Seventeen magazine or, or, or Daily Racing Forum, some of the others. He didn't involve himself as much in the editorial decisions. He, there was never any question over who was running the, the place, but he tended to give those editors more leeway, whereas at the Inquirer, his father had run it, and he was going to run it. And, uh, and, and, he, and he kept on a lot of the old war horses from the 20s and 30s and uh, that had worked for his father, and I just don't think that served served him well at all. Did the paper make money? Oh yeah, oh yeah. The paper. The, there's never been anything wrong with uh, Walter Annenberg's capacity to make money. I mean, the family was broke when when well, when, when Moses went to jail and they were in the process of paying off the fine. Uh, Walter made the fortune. Moses had made a fortune, and then it went. It was gone. So people who who don't know the story and say, well, Moses started the fortune, and Walter just built on it, that's incorrect. Moses started it, but he also lost it. <laughs> and Walter uh, actually started from scratch, basically started uh, from scratch while his father was in jail, and the company wasn't worth anything. And while he had some properties, there were federal liens uh, against uh, uh, all manner of the properties. So he took it from down here and moved it to there. I want to ask you about some of the presidents that he rubbed shoulders with, because there's quite a few of them, and here's the first one, and that is uh, Harry Truman. And given uh, his father's relationship with FDR, this is a pretty happy-looking pose with uh, Joseph Clark, who later became mayor of Philadelphia and senator from Pennsylvania, and Harry Truman and Walter Annenberg. That's correct. Uh, well, in... Uh, I'll have to I'll have to think carefully because I think I may get the year wrong. On uh, uh, in in forty in forty eight, uh, there was a sense, of course, that uh, uh, that Dewey was going to get the nomination and sweep and sweep to victory uh, in uh, uh, in the presidential uh, election. 
And both conventions that year were held in Philadelphia. Walter at, Walter at that point was coming into his own, and in 52, of course, when it came up again for uh, the conventions, he made a very strong bid uh, uh, for to get the conventions back in Philadelphia. Uh, but because the uh, uh, because the Dewey experience had been so disastrous, of course, uh, Truman beat him uh, handily in a great one of the world one of the nation's great political upsets. Uh, there was no question that was that the, uh, uh, the the convention was not going to come back to to Philadelphia. But Walter was very involved in civic affairs then, and he made a really good push. And he met Truman, and Truman told him, he said, "Just forget it, uh, young man." He said, "You're working very hard at it, and I, and I know what you're doing here." He said, "But it's you know it's going to going to Chicago." In fact, Earl McCormick had made a big pitch for it out there. But Walter liked Truman uh, enormously, and he said he just you know. He, wasn't he wasn't his candidate, but he loved his directness and he liked the fact that he was a real straight shooter, uh, because Walter considers that he he himself was a straight shooter and he and he and he's he's done that any number of times he's you know he's crossed over he said he, which is again one of the surprises that I I would have thought that now he would have had no truck with a, uh, with a Truman or or a Lyndon Johnson for example, uh, but in 1964. Uh, Walter supported uh, Johnson very strongly, and Johnson came to Philadelphia to thank him uh, for it, because Walter was not interested, had no respect for Barry Goldwater, uh, the Republican candidate, supposedly his candidate, uh, but he didn't, didn't, didn't like him at all, didn't respect him, and so went back the other way on that. So he's, he likes presidents. There's no question that he, that he likes presidents. Uh, but they don't have to be Republican. I ask you about this gentleman here, and that is... Uh... Richard Nixon. What kind of relationship did uh, Walter Annenberg have with Richard Nixon? He had a good relationship uh, with Nixon. He was actually introduced to Nixon by uh, his mother, Sadie, uh, who had given him a little small amount of money in the early 50s. She liked him as a congressman from California uh, and then as vice president. And then the Annenbergs became very close with the Nixons, both uh, uh, Lee and Walter Annenberg and Pat and uh, Dick Nixon. And when uh, when Vice President Nixon made his uh, trip to South America uh, in, let's see, 1956, I think, uh, could have been 58, I've just forgotten at the moment, uh, and he returned and he was attacked by mobs down there. He came back pretty, uh, pretty battered psychologically at any rate, and he came, came to Wynwood and, uh, to recuperate and spend some time with the, uh, with the Annenbergs then. So they had a very, they had a very solid uh, political uh, relationship. It was not as personal relationship as Walter would have and had with another fellow who would be president later, Ronald Reagan, but he had a very uh, good relationship with Nixon, and Nixon, Nixon and Walter had a lot in common, actually. They both, they had, uh, they both thought were similar kinds of mothers, almost saintly mothers who just doted uh, on, on their sons. Uh, these were two men, Walter Annenberg and Richard Nixon, whom each man felt had been unfairly you know, kind of criticized and uh, chopped up by critics uh, along the way. And, and Walter used to tell uh, Dick Nixon, he said, life is 99 rounds. Just pick yourself up and keep moving on. And, uh, and, and Nixon liked that in Walter. He liked the fact that Walter didn't ask anything from him. He was just supportive. And he, in fact, Walter wouldn't even, didn't even give him money. It's some of his sisters gave money and his kids gave money, but Walter and Lee gave some money. Uh, not, not huge amounts, not that I could track any rate, uh, because when the Federal Elections Commission came in and started tracking this, it was still fairly primitive in 68, but it was recorded. And Walter, Walter was very specific about not giving, uh, because, he had, because he had his newspaper, he didn't want to be giving uh, funds to politicians, but he gave Nixon, he gave Nixon good coverage, uh, although we played the campaign very straight, uh, he'd give him good editorial coverage, and he and uh, uh, but in terms of the news copy, he was very proud. Walter was of, uh, of trying to keep absolutely balanced coverage between uh, Nixon and Humphrey, for example, in 1968. You mentioned his wife Lee a couple of times. Will you talk a little bit more about her because you refer to her as his best friend? She's tremendously uh, important uh, to, in this whole Annenberg story, and again, I don't think she's ever been given uh, full credit uh, for what she's done. Uh, Walter was married uh, uh, once before uh, to a Canadian uh, woman named Ronnie Dunkelman, 
And that marriage uh, lasted from 38 uh, until 1950. And it was the terrible period for Walter, his father's indictment and prison and the paying off the fine uh, and all. It was very difficult and the marriage did not survive. In 1951, he married uh, Lee Rosenstiel and Walter is her third husband. Her, uh, her uh, mother had died when she was very young, uh, when Lee was very young, at, five, at seven. And uh, then her father couldn't raise her, and he basically abandoned her, and she was raised by her father's brother, Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia Studios, the, probably the most dictatorial mogul in Hollywood uh, in, those, in those years. Uh, so she'd had, a, she'd had a very complicated upbringing. Uh, Harry was not, a, not an easy house to be raised in. And uh, so she was married very early. She went to Stanford. She's a Stanford graduate, 1940. She's very smart. And, uh, and she learned about how to run houses, however, while she was uh, being raised by Harry's wife. Uh, and then she married uh, right out of college. She didn't have a place to live, really. And then she married a, uh, another fellow in the mid-40s, uh, uh, 1940s, uh, Lee Ro uh, Lou Rosenstiel, who was the head of Shenley Liquors. He was a very wealthy guy and a very uh, difficult guy also. He's a manic depressive, had a lot of trouble. And Lee and Walter met in Florida uh, at a cocktail party. They went down. At, they were going to have dinner on the uh, dinner in the dining room uh, at this, after this cocktail party. And Walter asked her to dance. And uh, they danced the, throughout the entire dinner. They never sat down. The two tables where they were supposed to go sit were kind of agog at what was going on. And they danced for a couple of hours, and they knew, everyone knew, that something was really happening. Walter was in the process of getting divorced, but Lee was very married at the time. And they had a very tumultuous, tumultuous uh, uh, start to this because Lee's husband wouldn't give her a divorce and all of this. And finally it worked out. They got married. And Lee has had a huge impact on Walter. Uh, I think that Walter would have been fabulously wealthy without her, and he would have been a considerable philanthropist without him, without her. But they, they traveled at such lofty circles uh, that I think that, in their case, one and one is really more than two. <laughs> they, they've complemented each other in such ways, uh, they're very different in some respects and very similar in some, uh, that Lee has smoothed out his rough spots, of which there are many, uh, and she's channeled his energies, and she has exquisite taste, uh, and I think that together uh, they have just moved onto a whole uh, other plane uh, because in the old days, before her, he, he might well just have lashed out. He has a real temper, but together there's, a, there's definitely a calmness that, uh, that, she's, that she's brought to him and a support, and it's been tremendously important to him, and he recognizes it. Has Walter Annenberg read this book? Uh, he's read parts of it uh, because it's only been finished, uh, you know, recently. It's 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 a it's you know I don't want to say it's a long book because it moves very fast, but it's uh, uh, it's hard for him to to focus on some of the stuff about his father. I'm I'm both uh, you know I'm both sympathetic and tough on his father. I'm sympathetic on Walter and tough on Walter, and so I think. It's, uh, it's hard to read about yourself that way. Uh, Lee, however, has read it, and I asked her what she thought. You know, let's get our story straight here because I'm going to be asked about it. Uh, and, she's, and she was very supportive, and, and we, my wife and I just had dinner with them a couple of weeks ago. They're, they've been very, uh, very positive about it all. Lee essentially said, listen, we wish you've left a lot of this out. I mean, there's, it's very personal. It's very up close. Uh, there are a lot of detail in here that we wish the world didn't have to know about, but they didn't have a, a, a problem with it. They've been, you know, they've, they've been very helpful to me on it. Uh, they cooperated throughout. Uh, the ambassador opened up all his files, gave me all his files, gave me, gave me love letters, gave me all his stock, uh, sales back to the 1930s, gave me doctor's reports, gave me wills, gave me letters from his children. So they've been, it's, it's very well grounded, but it's very close in. And it's a story about a family that's had tremendous triumphs, but also overcome great difficulties.
I wish we could keep going, but we're out of time. This is the cover of the book. We've been talking about Legacy, a biography of Moses and Walter Annenberg. Christopher Ogden, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details. Like us on Facebook.